a content warning. In this episode, we discuss abortion. In relation to this, we also touch upon sexual assault and rape. Hello, you're listening to the Mastery Diplomat. This is Stella, Brendan, and Florian. We celebrated International Women's Day on March 8th, but honestly, we should celebrate women every day. With that being said, this is the first episode of a series very close to our hearts. This will be a series of episodes discussing abortion rights in the EU and Europe generally. Before starting our discussion, I would like to say that when we use the term women, we most certainly do not exclude people who menstruate or who do not identify as women. For this reason, we'll use women and people who menstruate or people interchangeably without discriminating against anyone who might identify otherwise. This is a safe space and we respect and fight for everyone. So, in recent years, there's been a lot of discussion over abortion rights in the United States of America, thinking that we in Europe are so much more elevated as people when it comes to healthcare. Jokes on us, though, because a closer look at certain European countries shows that the trend does not go towards liberalization, while at EU level, the European Commission is legally unarmed. This series will discuss the matter at hand from a judicial standpoint, where we'll be talking about certain legislations in various European countries that might go against what we know as human rights. Then, a social, political, and religious standpoint, where we'll be talking about how society and religion might affect the way people view human rights and abortion rights. Without excluding politics, of course, because everything can be political. Moreover, we'll be looking at abortion rights from a medical standpoint, talking about certain healthcare issues that might require uh, an abortion, or more importantly, what dangers lurk from banning abortion and people having to have illegal and sometimes life-threatening procedures. This idea was inspired by the thousands of people who demonstrated against the abortion ban in Poland with the black protest back in October 2016, but also the 2020 protests all over the country against the October 22nd ruling, which states that abortion in cases of fetal abnormalities were incompatible with the Constitution, referring to them as eugenic abortions, which I'm sorry, but that sounds ridiculous. This move means that all abortions in Poland are now banned, except in cases of rape and incest, or when the carrier's life or health are considered to be at risk. But forcing people to carry non-viable pregnancies sometimes endangers their own lives. But before we continue with the discussion, we would like to share some statistics that we found on the topic. To start off, the standard practice across Europe is to legalize or liberalize access to abortion on upon request on social grounds or for whatever reason within the first trimester. To put that in perspective, that's the first 12 weeks. In addition, abortion is also legal throughout the pregnancy where necessary to protect the carrier's life. Across the European continent, 41 countries have allowed abortions on persons' requests or on broad social grounds, while six countries outright ban abortions or restrict them to a heavy extent. Across the European Union, 25 of the 27 member states allow abortion to some degree, with Poland and Malta being the exceptions, and until recently, also Ireland. Abortion upon request or on broad social grounds in the European Union, is allowed in Austria, Belgium, Bulgaria, Croatia, Cyprus, the Czech Republic, Denmark, Estonia, France, Germany, Greece, Hungary, Ireland, Italy, Latvia, Lithuania, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, Portugal, Romania, Slovakia, Slovenia, Sweden, Spain, Finland, 
and the United Kingdom, which we know isn't part of the European Union anymore. You don't have to say it again. The six European countries that retain highly restrictive abortion laws are Andorra, Malta, San Marino, which do not allow abortions at all, Liechtenstein, which only allows it when the woman's health or life is at risk, or the pregnancy is a result of sexual assault. In Monaco and Poland, it's only allowed when the woman's life or health is at risk, and if the pregnancy is the result of sexual assault or incest, or it involves severe fetal anomalies. There are also some jurisdictions, for example, the UK jurisdiction of Northern Ireland and Gibraltar, and the Danish jurisdiction of the Faroe Islands, which also maintain highly restrictive laws in a devolved manner. Throughout this series, we'll be talking about Poland and Malta, of course, but also the various legal approaches within the EU, for example, Germany, but also the Republic of Ireland, which completely turned a page when it comes to abortion rights after the death of Savita Halapanavar in 2012, who had been denied an abortion while suffering a septic miscarriage. This increased calls to repeal the Eighth Amendment. The constitutional and legislative provisions were discussed at a Citizens' Assembly in 2016 and 17 at an Oireachtas Committee in 2017, which is basically the legislature of Ireland, and it consists of the President of Ireland and the two houses, so the Parliament and the Senate, both of which recommended substantial reform and framed the debate of the referendum in May 2018. And what's interesting, and I suppose that it'll come up in our discussions further on, is that these four countries are quite religious, quite Catholic. And I think it will be very interesting to see how maybe religion and society kind of affect each other, leading to changes in the legislature or like the the laws of a country or, in this case, the European Union. Since we started talking a little bit more about Ireland, Brendan, would you like to kind of explain how this came to be and give us the lay of the land for abortion rights and regulations in uh, sweet Ireland? Sure. I think what you said when you're talking about religion and how certain countries, especially the ones that we're talking about, Malta, Poland, Ireland and Germany, Germany to a lesser extent, but are all very religious countries or have been in the past. Ireland and Poland specifically, I would say, are they have an, an extreme entanglement of church and state that maybe a lot of other countries have uh, moved away from earlier on in their in their history. While in Ireland, it's only recently where the church is actually losing its influence on the state. But I think to explore what the referendum in 2018 on repealing an amendment in the constitution that legally banned abortion by making it constitutionally inviolable. In order to do that, we kind of have to look at the history and how it got there and Mm. what what the history of abortion is in Ireland. In 1861, the Offences Against the Persons Act was introduced throughout the United Kingdom and, and Great Britain, which included Ireland at the time. And the way it was phrased is that incurring a miscarriage voluntarily is punishable by law. And this pretty much stayed in Irish law for, for a long time. And even after independence in the first half of the 20th century, this persisted. These laws stayed in Ireland. It was, there wasn't a complete change, an overhaul of, of how the Irish legal system worked. I think this keeps going until 1972. The 60s and the 70s were a global, or at least in the West, there were a big time of, of, of cultural change and societal change. And it was in at this time in 1972 where I think her name was May McGee, who brought a kid 
her and her husband brought a case before the High Court in Ireland to argue that they had marital privacy and were able to import contraceptives, which until then had been illegal. This was because Mae McGee was told by the doctors that she wouldn't be able to be pregnant again, otherwise it could damage her health, she could die. And this was brought forward and was won. And this kind of started the the growth of a grassroots campaign in Ireland to constitutionally protect the life of the child in the womb, because that's how it was viewed, and still is by a lot of people. Because they saw, in Ireland, they saw this as similar to what was happening in America with Roe v. Wade, because there was another case that was used in Roe v. Wade that looked similar to the, the case of, of May McGee, because it also, fo- it was I think it was a Connecticut case that also used marital privacy as the justification for allowing them to uh, use contraceptives and such. But that was used as, as basis for, for the later Roe v. Wade uh, decision. To be used basic, things that we deserve, contraception. Yeah, <laughs> practically. But change is slow and these things unfortunately take a lot of time and a lot of obviously legal deliberation and contestation. I think it's quite interesting to see how how recent a lot of this change is. And that brings us to 1983 in Ireland where by a two-thirds majority the Irish people voted in a referendum to include the Eighth Amendment into the Constitution. Which, to paraphrase the Eighth Amendment, it regards the rights to life of the unborn child as equal to the mother. Which, even at the time, was a already pointed out to be legally problematic because at some point you're going to have to choose or make a decision someone down the line is going to have to make the decision about which life is weighed and how for certain decisions yeah but this brought us to a strange situation in ireland was very difficult to actually help women when it comes to their health without breaking the law and then another important case that came up is the x case in ireland in 1992 where a woman pregnant due to rape went to the uk to seek an abortion there because she wasn't able to get it in ireland and then the family sent back some of the dna to the police in ireland to persecute the rapist but what they ended up doing is they brought this to the irish prosecutor and they prosecuted the woman who went to get the abortion for killing the child against Irish law. So That's insane. Yeah, it is it is pretty insane. <laughs> but this ended, long story short, obviously, I'm not going to go into all the details of the court case, but yeah. this case ended up deciding that it was legal to get abortions abroad um, because they ended up ruling in favour of the woman who got the abortion in, in the UK. However, nothing was ever really done on the case. I think the earliest time they spoke about it again was in 2012 when Savita died, which is quite a time. It's almost a decade uh, since. And an inquiry into what happened to Savita, which was that she couldn't carry the baby to term and the miscarriage ended in sepsis, which killed her, could have been avoided. But due to the overly cautious health sector, because they didn't want to break the law, she died. There was even an inquiry in Ireland that found that the Eighth Amendment bore responsibility for this death. And this kind of brings us to 2018, where after a long campaign, again, I think it's almost poetic that a two-thirds majority again voted to repeal the Eighth Amendment and replace it with a different text that allows for the legislation of regulated abortion, which ended up kind of fitting what we said at the beginning with the kind of standard that is set across Europe. Obviously not a European standard, but the idea that within the first trimester, you get a safe termination of the pregnancy. There used to be around 6,000 to 7,000 women who would go across the RC to the UK to seek abortions, around 6,000, 7,000 a year, which, yeah, which is a lot. 
considering Ireland's a very small country, mainly full of old people. But yeah, so I think that's the full that's the full story of abortion in Ireland. It's quite a detailed one, but I thought it was important to kind of understand that it was a recent phenomena since before Ireland was a country. Yeah, I just wanted to add to that, maybe already talking about Ireland at the moment and how problematic the whole development on Ireland was. We can already mention that the UN Human Rights Council, which is probably one of the most important bodies under international human rights law, actually also had a case regarding Ireland and regarding the same situation that Brendan just described to us, where the Human Rights Council actually came to the conclusion that the whole actions by Ireland constitutes a violation of Article 7 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, which deals with the prohibition of torture. So it actually, quite a high threshold that Ireland crossed in this case, because it was the case of AM v. Ireland in 2013, where a woman was forced to travel from Ireland to the UK to terminate a non-viable pregnancy. And then she was denied access to funding support from Ireland's public health system. She experienced social stigma because of the abortion, and also she wasn't permitted to receive post-medical treatment in Ireland. And then in the end, the UN Human Rights Council actually said this already constitutes some form of torture or inhumane or degrading treatment. So we see this is not just a minor decision, basically, by by one single state saying our moral values don't say it's okay to have abortions. But this is actually quite a heavy infringement of international human rights. Yeah, I mean, that's what's so, I guess, impressive about the whole thing is that on the one side, you have the religious values that drive this kind of legislation and. And on the other hand, you have the same, I guess, universalism and humanism that created what we refer to as human rights. And strangely enough, they conflict. (laughs) And I think that's what you had in Ireland for the longest time and what what you're seeing now in Poland with increasing restriction on access to safe abortions. It is violating human rights. Certainly. I think that we need to reconsider what constitutes a viable life in that sense. Do we consider a fetus a full human being or is it still not that? Yeah. There's just one more thing I want to say. Civita wasn't the only one There are many women who were victims of this legal state. There are many victims who we should not forget about. There's a whole list. And if you look online, you will find it. And there are so many different reasons. But in the end, the reason for all of them happening was the same thing. It was the law blocking this. And it happened before Civita and it even happened afterwards. That's very important to remember that... There's a human cost. Exactly. There is a human cost. And we have to figure out what we want to do and kind Countries should figure out what what matters most. Thank you, Brandon, for this. Florian, since you started this conversation about international human rights, would you like to give us some more information on also EU law and if there is something different in Germany? Then I would start with EU law first because many people are always quite quick to say, oh yeah, the European Union should act on this. The European Union should enact some legislation to do this. And I bet even in this discussion, there are numerous people saying, yeah, the EU should say that abortions are legal in every member state and the problem is the EU actually can't do that despite of what many people are claiming in every regard basically because just to give you a quick legal insight quite superficially there are some form of competences that the EU can have in different areas which are expressly listed in the Treaty of the Functioning of the European Union or the Lisbon Treaty as you might know it. Abortions would arguably fall within the supporting competences under Article 6.2 of the uh, Treaty of the Functioning of the European Union which deals with the improvement 
movement of human health. So this means that the EU can't just say, okay, we're enacting a directive obligating every member state to act in a certain way regarding abortions, but the EU rather can just try to support the member states in their improvement of certain health standards, which would then, of course, also include abortions. But therefore, the EU can't really act on itself in this sphere, but merely can have some programs and offer guidance to the member states to improve the standard of healthcare all over the EU. We also have to distinguish then would be European human rights under the European Convention of Human Rights, which is again kind of a separate regime. And the European Convention on Human Rights is basically a, a Bible when it comes to human rights within Europe. And there are numerous provisions which might touch upon the aspects of abortion or reproductive rights, such as the right to private and family life under Article 8. There's also, which is probably the main point of the whole discussion of abortions, again, the right to life under Article 2. And I will talk about this a little bit more. But first, as a starting point, I think the right to life under Article 2 is quite important. And there were actually a few cases on this. Here, the groundbreaking or the fundamental aspect that we have to keep in mind when it comes to more of the theoretical or moral discussion when it comes to abortion is where does life begin? And this is not only a moral discussion, but here in this sphere, it also becomes a legal discussion because under Article 2, we have the right to life and it's a positive and negative obligation of the state to basically uphold this right. So the state, for example, can't just kill its citizens, but the state has also the positive right of enacting steps to ensure that the right to life is uphold. So here then in regards to abortion, the question probably be, can the state actually allow abortions to happen? Or would some people then say, no, the right to life begins with the conception? Because then this would probably be a violation of the of Article 2 by the state, because the state basically said, yeah, abortions are legal. And this is kind of the main point, which is in every aspect, the main, main discussion point here. But also the problem when it comes to the right to private and family life, which is probably the main provision when it comes to reproductive rights is that basically the European member states have quite some discretion when it comes to what extent they allow reproductive rights or also other rights that are included under the right to private and family life. And basically discretion means that there is kind of a framework set by the European Convention on Human Rights, but that the states have a certain margin of appreciation depending on their cultural and moral values. So for example, if you say Poland has... I think a Catholic population of around 90% and many, many people, especially in the rural areas are saying they believe in these conservative, quite old-fashioned Catholic views that abortion should be illegal and that the right to life is basically basically of utmost importance, then the European Court of Human Rights has basically said that Poland should have some discretion as to what extent they would allow abortion. So this is always, again, kind of the problem when you have differing moral values. But it is important what you say about how Poland should have some kind of say. But in on the 24th of February, we had the meeting with several MEPs where they organized this debate on abortion laws in Poland with Jose Ingreja Matos, the president of the European Association of Judges, that the EU should consider the immediate withdrawal of EU funding for Poland and launch uh, infringement proceedings against the country. But then he stated that this is technically inhumane. So how far can the EU intervene within a country 
I think the highest pressure that the EU can exercise is basically withdrawing funding for these countries. And this has, of course, quite significant effects for countries such as Poland. And as I've said, the European Convention on Human Rights, it basically sets a framework. So human rights is always kind of a balancing exercise legally. So, of course, I, I'm not fully in the picture when it comes to the exact details of the Polish legislation now with regards to abortion. But for example, if you would say that it's so extreme that the women probably don't have any access to medical information when it comes to abortion or basically are not educated on it and that they have to carry a child even though though it can harm their right to health or their right to life then it always becomes a balancing exercise for example between the right to life of the mother under article 2 and the right to life of the child under article 2 depends a little bit on the degree to to which extent the new laws are potentially violating some human rights what happens in Germany? I think Germany is quite interesting, actually. I mean, I'm from Germany and I wasn't so aware of the topic until I think two or three years ago, because you would you would basically think that Germany is probably quite progressive. We're in the middle of Europe and of course, abortions are legal. But if you have a strictly legal look at it, you see that abortions are actually illegal in Germany and can bring fines of imprisonment up to three years or one year for the pregnant woman itself, just from paragraph 218 of the German criminal code. However, there's the technical peculiarity, which basically exempts the women from liability for, for terminating a pregnancy in certain cases. So the abortion is illegal, but basically the legal consequence is exempted in certain circumstances, which are then, for example, abortions after counseling with a trained doctor in the first trimester, medically necessary abortions and abortions due to unlawful sexual act. Basically, the situations that we would expect where termination of a pregnancy should be possible. And the effect is that in 2019 alone in Germany, there were 100,398 abortions. So even if you'd say superficially abortion is illegal, you see that the effect is quite different. And there was quite some debate about whether the original provision of the German criminal code, so paragraph 218, should be revoked entirely in the last years, because there was also, for example, a German doctor who was basically informing patients on her website about abortions and then she was sued for promoting unlawful act which is of course ridiculous if you think about it today that a doctor who is just i mean she was not basically saying like hey we have a sale 50 percent on every abortion but she was just having on her website for her clinic she was having she was having information on the medical procedure and this led to, to quite some protests in germany actually and yeah but so far, still nothing has happened and paragraph 218 is still effective, basically. And we will see how, how that develops in the future. I mean, generally, we have to say that with the introduction of paragraph 218A, so basically the exemption that it was already a step into the right direction that we had in the 70s, especially when you consider that actually abortion was uh, sanctioned with the death penalty under the National Socialists. So basically a step up for Germany in the last years. But I think by now we can agree that probably we are ready for the next step and abolishing paragraph 218 overall i mean it's again this kind of the illustration of, of how maybe socially and, and such we central and western europe is moving in, in a certain direction but there is still the kind of the leftover legalistic problems that they're kind of hard to get rid of and they're sticky if you will 
like they it'll take a long time before we're able to maneuver around that yeah. and even then right for example what's happened maybe with the discussion of repealing the ridiculous law that in effect created a situation where promoting abortions is inciting people to commit a criminal act it's uh, it's strange. In my opinion, it also shows that uh, that some of the conservative voices that are basically always claiming to just wanting to protect the unborn child or the right to life in general, that it isn't really about protecting anything for them, but just about preserving some conservative values often. Because I, I mean, if we think about the case of the German doctor, she was neutrally informing all her patients about the medical procedure itself. So she was providing reliable information about quite severe medical procedure which is of course just increasing the public health overall and i think just acting against that that the doctor providing information is just insane if you think about it and morally completely wrong yeah definitely because abortion as we know and understand is literally the last resort for people abortion is a very heartbreaking and painful mentally but also physically procedure yeah and uh, it's not as clear cut as the narrative often goes that it's a murder of the fetus. The reasoning being that they don't want it. Often it's the case also that it's for the health of the person who is having the child, who is either unable to, to have the child without coming in mortal danger themselves or it's so multifaceted and complicated hmm. that, again, this kind of simplification is problematic. Thank you for the information, Florian. Very extensive information on <laughs> EU yeah. law. No, it was nice to have like a look at what the EU can and can't do exactly. and what it means for each uh, member state to have their own uh, interpretation of the, the European Charter of Human Rights. And thank you, Florian, for really laying that out. So now to move on to a kind of different setting, because we talked about Ireland, we talked about Germany, briefly about Poland. So in Eastern Europe, including Poland and Malta, things are a little bit different. Abortion, as opposed to contraception, is widely used as means of family planning in some countries in Eastern Europe. So often other modern family planning methods, such as contraception, are not accessible or affordable or are inaccessible due to the stigma attached to them. And that's really the case in Eastern Europe. Numerous studies have shown that adolescent pregnancy tends to be lower in countries where parental consent for abortion is not required and access to youth sexual and reproductive services and affordable contraceptives is increased. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that within the European framework, there should be a closer look on contraceptive rights, also affordance and taxing and services, because abortion, as we said, is the last resort for young people who for whatever reason, they cannot afford or cannot have regular contraception. Even in a country which, I mean, I grew up in Greece. Greece has many problems, okay, but we did legalize abortion in 1986. Even in terms of rape and incest, a person can have an abortion at 19 weeks which is a lot further than the first trimester. Or if there's a fetal abnormality, uh, 24 weeks. So that's six months. Yeah. So even in a country which is in that specific matter, kind of liberal, there's still this stigma and embarrassment when accessing contraceptives. So correct me if I'm wrong, but what you're kind of saying is, is twofold. On the one hand, we shouldn't only focus on abortion, although this is like the topic of your series. But in general, you have the, the need for also a more holistic view and including contraception and prevention. Yeah, because 
I think that if you have proper sexual education and, as you said, a holistic approach to contraception, then the need for abortion will be less. And then this painful experience will be less as well. And I think that it is a first step towards being okay with our beliefs as well. Because, okay, if you're a re very religious person, you might not want your kids to have sex, but they will have sex. So it's better for them to have safe sex on all fronts than them having to go through an illegal, life-threatening procedure because it goes against your beliefs in that sense. So what you're saying that you led on with with Eastern European and Central Asian countries is that they might have quite liberal approaches to abortion laws, but in general there is a lack of good contraceptives and good contraception and, uh, information. And, and information. Yeah. But yeah, I think what's quite interesting is for Central and Eastern European countries and also for the Central Asian countries is they're all ex-Soviet countries, or not all of them, but a lot of them are ex-Soviet countries. And there's a post-Soviet legacy when it comes to abortion and contraception. When the USSR was, was around, abortion laws were quite liberal. Mm. It was actually quite easy. And I think that's also, from what I remember, that's one of the reasons why it was so popular as a form of family planning is because it's been around for so long. But then is also interesting is all of these countries have kind of experienced lower birth rates over the last few decades. And there's been a rise of kind of natalist policies where they promote having larger families and all that stuff. And in some countries, specifically Poland, which kind of breaks the mold of most of these post-Soviet states as it has more restrictive laws than most other countries. Just so we know, in Poland... Abortion is only allowed under certain circumstances, right? If the pregnancy is endangering the carrier's life or health, if it is needed to prevent serious injury, or if there is a serious or non-treatable defect in the fetus, and after rape or incest, which has a detail that is really infuriating. The fact that in case of rape or, as it says, other sexual crime, like incest, the criminal act has to be confirmed by a prosecutor, which is so wow. insane because not only a person that's been raped has to go through their own search for healing through this traumatic experience and having to have an abortion because for whatever reason they don't want to keep that baby, they have to go through a prosecutor. And in some cases, these people cannot tell people because of whatever circumstances. They might be in a very conservative family or they just don't want to go through this experience of telling someone, hey, I've been raped and I need an abortion. Not a lot of people want to say that out loud. No, they just want to deal with it on their own terms, go there, have the abortion, go out and mm -hmm. start healing with somebody that they can trust and in the time that they want to do that. So this looks to me as another form of invasion, of continuance of this traumatic experience mm -hmm. in that case, because you have to face the truth. Yeah. You have to justify you it have to, in yeah. front of a prosecutor. Yeah, yeah. I think that this is quite... <sighs> Yeah, quite traumatic even to think about. And then also doctors performing abortions outside of the stated grounds they have are subject to two years of imprisonment. Not only are they there to help, they cannot because their professional lives are in danger. Also their lives. I their mean, livelihoods. Yeah, yeah, also their lives because you don't know what happens in prison. 
the law is much more restrictive in practice. There's a lot of evidence that many women were denied legal abortions to which they were legally entitled, particularly when their health was endangered. And that's mainly due to the lack of adequate regulations on the medical grounds for abortion. So it depends only on the doctor's position, and it can be easily abused because they're influenced by the anti-choice campaigns, especially now, which is a very big issue in Poland and the European Union. It is estimated that around 100,000 Polish women travel abroad each year for a termination. That's a lot of people. I think that brings us also to an interesting point, is that how the European Union comes into play again. Maybe it cannot provide any kind of actual legislation on the topic, but due to freedom of movement, it is possible for people to go to another country to have these procedures, which, I mean, for Ireland, for an example, without easy access to the UK for the last 50 years, it would have been a lot worse than what it was. Yeah. And I think this is another case of that. Not only that, but but we can't forget that the people who can leave and get an abortion outside of the country have to be able to afford that. Exactly. You have to pay for lodging. You have to pay for your travel, your abortion. That's a lot of money. And yeah. if you cannot afford that, you have to resort to illegal house abortions, which can literally kill you. Mm-hmm. Literally. As a representative from Poland's Federation for Women and Family Planning told CNN, there is a lot of rage and frustration, and I totally get that because it is frustrating. It makes you feel a lot of rage because it's basic human rights. Abortion rights are human rights. And she said also, even wanting to get pregnant in this country, women would be afraid they would not get services like prenatal testing, for example. Many may go abroad to obtain professional pregnancy care and that is so tricky and so sneaky as well because if they go for a prenatal testing and then the fetus has some type of problem some type of non-treatable defect then what happens then if they want to get an abortion they won't be able to so women are afraid to even go for just some regular testing that every carrier has to go through and wants to go through to make sure that their baby's fine So it's Mm -hmm. so sneaky. Yeah. I mean, it's important to say that not everyone agrees. For example, quoting someone from Center of International Law in Poland saying, I think that the decision of the Polish constitution is a major step towards a full realization of human rights in our country. It's about fetal defects and syndromes like Down syndrome or Turner syndrome or other conditions that are seen as defects. We of course know that many people with Down syndrome and that many people who are disabled can live a very happy and full life. Of course they do have human rights. They're humans. They have rights. But the thing is that when it comes down to it, when somebody is carrying a fetus, it is their choice what to do and how to go about it. If they want to keep the baby, it's up to them. And that's what it comes down to. People should have their own physical and mental autonomy. I would like to introduce a charitable organization that is registered in the Netherlands. And it's called Women on Waves. 
As they say on their website, they aim to prevent unsafe abortions and empower women to exercise their human rights to physical and mental autonomy, and that includes what people do with their pregnancy. So this organization, Women on Waves, was founded by Rebecca Humberts in 1999, and what they do basically is that they're on a ship, they sail to countries where abortion is legal, and they provide contraceptives, information, training, workshops, but also safe and legal abortion services mm -hmm. in international waters. Oh, wow. Yeah. On, a, on a boat. The thing is that in international waters, the local laws do not apply. And that is about 12 miles off of the coast. So 12 miles, that would be 19 to 20 kilometers for people who do not do miles. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yes. But I think also I checked out their website and it's really, it's quite a, a great resource for almost anything to mm. do with sexual health. It has a long list of well-categorized sections yep. where you can seek good resources for any of your queries. And I think it's a good thing to pass along. I agree. Exactly. Which is why I wanted to talk about also this organization and Malta, because they're kind of connected. And I'll tell you why. <laughs> so Malta, Malta is beautiful. Malta is great, beautiful, but abortion is illegal. Very. And, and prohibited in all circumstances, which is insane. Anyone performing an abortion or a carrier who performs one on themselves or consents to the procedure can be jailed for between 18 months to three years. So a physician, surgeon, obstetrician or pharmacist, whoever performs an abortion faces a jail term of 18 months to four years and a lifelong ban from exercising their profession. It has serious repercussions. Wow. Yes. So the part that Women on Waves connects to it is that the government and bishops on the island objected strongly to moves in 2000 to perform abortions on a ship in international waters off of Malta. This is their ship? Yeah. Even in international waters where the country's jurisdiction does, does not, not extend apply. to. Yeah, mm -hmm. does not extend to. We had bishops and government officials just saying, no, you cannot do that. I'm sorry for this very long introduction into the subject. We were kind of, what was the word that you used? Ambitious. Over, yeah, we were overly <laughs> ambitious. We were kind of, yeah, overly ambitious. But there's just so much to cover. Yeah. That's the thing. But I think it's important because you would like to have a, a couple more episodes that discuss this topic in a bit more detail. So I think it's an unfortunate side effect that in order to give a bit of an overview onto what the legal and political kind of layout of abortion laws in Europe is, to have a thorough conversation about it, about the social side or the health side down the line. We are just a, a group of many, many countries that within their borders, they do whatever, as, I mean, for the most part, as they please. So it's very different for each one of them. And I think that is interesting and useful to know generally what happens within our borders. We might know about our own country and we might know about maybe hearing about Poland in the news now, but it's interesting to hear about, for example, Germany. I had no idea that's the way it was in Germany. And I think that's just one example of many um, throughout Europe and we only covered a few of them. But I hope that we manage to encapsulate a bit of the legal history in a few of these countries and show that Europe is diverse in how it even tackles this issue, let alone a myriad of other issues. We hope you enjoyed this episode. 
The lead producer in this episode was Stella. Co-producers are Brendan and Florian. The music in this episode is by Stone Ocean. This podcast is brought to you by the students of UNU Merit, the United Nations University Maastricht. We know it's been a while since our last upload, but hopefully this will make up for it because it's a series that we've been working on. The next two episodes should be out soon, and we hope you enjoy them. So thanks again for listening, and hoi hoi! <laughs>